Hello and welcome to episode 49 of the Scottish Liberty Podcast with me, Anthony Samroff. Since my usual co-host Tom is away in Portugal this week, lucky boy, I thought I would upload this programme which I recorded with my friend John Coleman for his channel youtube.com forward slash freedom philosophy tv in which we do a comprehensive treatment of socialism. It is a pretty long show but I think if you've got the attention span for it you'll get a lot of value out of it since we address the issue from many angles. Here it is and I hope you enjoy. Hello Anthony. Um, Hi John, how are you? Fine, welcome back to Freedom Philosophy TV. Perhaps you could just uh, give viewers uh, a brief introduction to yourself and your work. Hello, uh, my name's Anthony. I am a counsellor by profession, but as a hobby, I'm a freelance economist and the co-host of the Scottish Liberty podcast with my friend Tom Laird. And we usually put out a show weekly on various topics from a libertarian perspective. That's great, and I've been watching a few of those programs, and uh, I'm interested in the topics you talk about, particularly around uh, economics, which is something I've been learning a lot about, uh, particularly mm. from Mises. Uh, I found him very informative, and a few others. Um, so the topic today is socialism, and it's something I've spent a fair amount of time looking at, and I think you have as well. Uh, when I started uh, my path into exploring politics, it was through the route of sort of classic anarchism, uh, anarchism, uh, Kropotkin, uh, that kind of thing, uh, which of course, historically anarchism is, a, is I suppose, a, a sort of a left-wing philosophy, or it has a socialist flavor to it, um, but it's really quite a mix as well. There's, there's individualism in there as well, which I think is, is more my thing. Uh, and the idea, I mean, for me, just of, of not having somebody using violent uh, uh, force to, to coerce me to do things that I don't want to, that's, that's my anarchism. Um, but we're going to go through socialism, because I think it's, it's very interesting. The whole history of socialism, I think, is very interesting. Um, and there's, there's lots of themes to it. Um, and I, I wanted us to, to sort of give a really a broad uh, and deep critique of it uh, and show, I think, where, where it goes wrong uh, and why it's problematic. So I, I suppose we need to kick off by uh, saying what we think socialism is. And I've come up with uh, a few pointers on this. It seems to have be, been a reaction to the Industrial Revolution, so I suppose we're going back to sort of the 16th century, something like that, and the shocking sort of industrial conditions for the workers, the long hours, the dangerous machinery, the, uh, the low pay, and so on and so forth. Uh, you think of Charles Dickens and that kind of thing. Right. That set, sets the scene for it. Uh, and so there's a sense, I think, of um, struggle and futility. And there's a, I, I guess the working class, in a sense, is a new thing. Uh, before, throughout most of, of sort of the, the prehistory building up to industrial revolution, most people were like farm laborers or farm workers. I think it's incredible. In the US, it was like 92% of the population 
was directly involved in, in agriculture. And that was tedious and, and bloody and nasty work as well. Um, what, what's your thoughts on the, on the history of, and origins of, of socialism? Well, the thing is, when you mention the Industrial Revolution, the important thing about the, to know is that that was the period in which, for the first time in history, poverty became a conspicuous thing because lots of people moved to the city and were all poor in close proximity to one another. Actually, in real terms, standards of living had risen. In every measurable um, way, in terms of the access to diverse kinds of food, life expectancy, health condition, living conditions. Before that, you just um, freeze to death on the farm, or your kids would, and no one knew, no one saw, no one cared. So the thing is, the Industrial Revolution was the beginning of the end of poverty, and uh, in 2015, we celebrated less than 10% of the world's population being in poverty in the, for the first time in history, so an abject poverty. So I just wanted to clear up for anyone that has that misconception that the Industrial Revolution had forced people into worse conditions. Actually, no, before that, you know, you did what your parents did and you married who your parents said you should marry and your life was set out for you. It was only at this in the beginning of um, what would become the modern world that we live in that people could actually envisage a way out of poverty because you could see the rich factory owners um, having a disparity of wealth between you and the people that you were working with. The thing is, if you had just dis redistributed the wealth from the new capitalist class that were emerging, because remember before that, if you were rich, you were probably born rich. Very few people um, became rich in the world before the Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution allowed people to own the product of their own labor um, and uh, invest in things like machines and factories rather than spend that on a tour of Europe you know you could you could invest it and um, so for the first time there was actually a way out of the cycle of poverty if you just taken that money away from the capitalists and redistributed it to the workers everyone would get like a table leg or something like that and there would have been no money to invest in the machines that allow one person to do the work of 40 or 200 or now there's some there's some machines that do work that no person could do like making a microchip or a cat scan and um, the the these this is what created the wealth this is what created the wealth and if you look at real incomes they were increasing every year during the industrial revolution so that's one misconception that's worth getting out the way that um capitalism caused these horrible conditions and socialism though it might have been a reaction to those conditions uh, was not the cure to those conditions it was the growth and wealth of wealth in society okay um, we've also stumbled onto one of the topics I would like to challenge as one of the sort of socialist fallacies and this is the idea that poverty is a result 
of, of capitalism and hierarchy and so forth, when quite clearly po uh, poverty is the natural state. Uh, if we look at right. the, the natural world, if we look at uh, cattle or chimpanzees, which are our close genetic relatives, they don't really have any wealth. I mean, they might have a, a rock or a stick at best. Uh, obviously, cattle really have nothing. Uh, most animals live in direct connection to the natural world, and from one generation to, net, to the next, there is nothing's passed down. Uh, maybe, maybe some insects or beavers or something pass a nest down, or birds come back to a nest next year. But most of what uh, is created in the natural world is gone by the next generation, or is, is gone in a few generations, or it has to be perpetually... Yes. Uh, sustained um, by yes. labor so there isn't and that was more or less the case for human beings until the invention of agriculture exactly yes so there was no wealth passed from one generation to the next and there was no building up of wealth from one generation to the next so there was pretty much poverty was was the normal and the natural for humanity for most of our natural history uh, so it, it's fallacious to, to, to say uh, the poverty is caused by class, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, when clearly, no, um, capitalism, capitalism inherited poverty. It did not create it. Okay, so that's great. I think that's that's hopefully. I mean, you know, I'm not saying that uh, you can't have a scenario where a society could be engineered to deliberately keep people. From advancing out of poverty, um, that's that's another topic. Um, yes, but, and uh, certainly something that uh, you know we could discuss that has may well have occurred to a great deal. In my opinion, it has. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, the other thing I want to discuss about the history of socialism, and I think this particularly comes up. We, we'll talk about Karl Marx later, but there there seem to be some remarkable similarities to sort of Christianity as well. It's got this sort of religious undertones to it, uh, this dislike of those with wealth, uh, the, the idea uh, that, that money's sort of dirty, and this is similar to, some of this was present, I think, with anti-Semitism in the church, and, the, and of course, there's, there's in the story of Jesus um, uh, having a... a a go at the money uh, changers, and I think that was just because they were in the temples. I don't think it was because they were money changers, but I don't. I'm mm. not an expert. But there's there's this flavour of of dislike of material things and concern for the material world, which is definitely well. Wait a second. That is a relatively there. Uh, well, it depends how you look at it, because the old left believed that socialism would outperform capitalism, that capitalists were um, basically skimming off the work of their employees, right? Capitalism, capitalists aren't providing anything of value. The only thing is they own the machines in the factories. The yeah. people who work in the factories are making the money, and the capitalists just skimming a share off the top. Now, they thought if we can get rid of the capitalist class and have the workers run the, the factories, they were actually going to save money on the waste of paying the capitalist. So therefore, the growth in 
socialist economies will exceed the growth in capitalist economies and everyone will be wealthier and happier and uh, unicorns and rainbows when it turned out that in the real world the socialist economies were much less productive of uh, than the capitalist economies and that's because um, as Hayek and Mises explained, without prices, there's no rational way of allocating resources. You don't know what to produce in what measure and what's needed and what people want. Uh, then the tune suddenly changed and now it was like, oh, capitalism makes people materialistic. Capitalism is destroying the environment and so forth. Uh, but so there, that's the new left, the new left, uh, start change their focus from productivity which is um a debate they lost to empirical evidence to saying that capitalism makes people superficial and overly concerned on material goods and uh, damages the planet and so forth okay well let's let's stick with the historic theme um i've made a program already uh, which is about the utopian socialists these are very early uh, formative uh, social theorists and I spoke about uh, the Owenites, and uh, Owen himself was a, a wealthy industrialist, very successful in Britain with his uh, factories, and he was he was upset by the conditions of the workers, and I guess he had the, this idea again that he could make things more efficient if the workers controlled things. So uh, hundreds of them went out to the US, and they literally brought up entire towns uh, along with all the equipment and they took all the workers there and they created as, as much as they could a flat society um, so everybody had an equal say in what was happening everyone was supposed to do you know work equally etc was supposed to be classless they didn't have money and so on and so forth so they, they really were going uh, full communism or full communist and these experiments all failed within a year or two usually because of issues of of making decisions so if you've got hundreds of people trying to decide well who should do this work who should do that work what should we do with the products and things that we make how should they be distributed once you get hundreds of people involved in that decision making process uh, you'll be, and if you can't come to a consensus which is going to be challenging with that many people then it becomes very, very difficult to actually operate. Uh, and they, they fumbled into all of these problems. Right. And I think it was Josiah Warren was, was actually one of the people involved in the experiments. And he was able to deduce that the problem was, was the absence of private property because private property sort of makes everybody their own sort of micromanager of their little bit with their right, right. to control and govern their right. the economy. Um, I think there were other problems as well. Yeah, allocate responsibility. Yeah, allocating responsibility was problematic because it was supposed to be collective. Uh, something else was things like if somebody was ill, then other people would say, well, you've been ill for too long. You, you look well enough to me. You should be back at work. So we got, in again, into issues of responsibility and accountability. Um, so that was problematic. And then we got into the whole issue of value as well. So people who were toiling out in the fields were saying, well, obviously we have to toil in the fields to make food because we've got to eat. Um, but they were saying, well, how does my one hour in the field match the music teacher's one hour in music class? Because we actually don't need to do 
uh, music. We don't need to learn about it. That's kind of that's just a hobby. So why not just you know you don't get any any food for teaching music. You do that in your spare time. You should be doing some hard work. So there are all kinds of these sort of little economic problems and responsibility issues, uh, and this ultimately is why these kind of communes collapse uh, pretty quickly. I hear you. So, what direction do you want to go in from here? Right. The next, the next subject is a sort of trying to form a normative um, definition of what socialism is, because yeah. we have state socialism, we have the what we just spoke about, utopian socialism, the early day stuff, the formative stuff. Uh, we also have the um, let me see. We have the sort of anarchist flavors of socialism as well, so like uh, anarcho-syndicalism, uh, communism as well is essentially uh, both anarchist and socialist. So what, what are sort of the common themes of all of these flavors or so-called flavors of, of socialism? If, if we had to nail it down to two bullet points, to me egalitarian, egalitarianism comes up as one thing, so the desire to sort of make everybody equal in terms of equal access to, to their needs, equal in social status. Uh, that, that, I would say, was a, a big piece of it. Uh, what, what does it mean for you? What, what's, you know, if you had to get socialism down to its essence? Well, nowadays, um, usually when people talk about socialism, they mean well, I mean, it could just flat out mean communism. Usually it gets referred to as the government taking action uh, on behalf of work or, or what they define as workers. The government taking action to make people more equal or egalitarian or to take after the take care of the poor and so forth. What it used to mean is something like you, you talked about, the utopian socialists who believed that workers should run their own workplaces and own the means of production. Usually, very few, but the radical left still mean uh, workers owning the means of production when they talk about socialism, and they've always got the get out clause of being able to say, well, real socialism's never happened because we've never had a country where workers own the workplace. That is, to a degree, true. Um, Although, as you said, there, you, you illustrated some unsuccessful experiments with structuring societies differently. Although I would say that workers owning their workplace is completely compatible with free market capitalism. And if people want to buy a factory or go to the bank and buy, buy the factory off their boss, and if they think they can run it better, they're more or more than willing to do that. What's more, I think that people in this society do not have the skills or the upbringing to be able to run their own workplaces. So imagine you can just get rid of the capitalists and suddenly make the society more egalitarian is ridiculous. What you have to first do is look at the fact that we're putting through everyone through 11 to 13 years of top-down authoritarian hierarchical education where they're bossed around and told to do what they're told when they're told and you expect them to be able to go into the world and create workplaces that are satisfying and meaningful and so forth. These schools, this school system was instituted by the state by well-meaning socialists 
um, who thought that it would be for for the greater good to educate everyone in the same way, which means we basically lost out on 150 years of market competition in education, optimizing this education system in line with the evidence of how people best learn, which by the way, there's a lot of evidence on how people best learn, which this education system has just basically ignored for over 50 years. Um, and you could create a lot more, a lot better schools, and then your prospects for um, creating a more egalitarian society or workplace would be better. But just kick, kicking out the capitalists and expecting that uh, everything will be hunky dory is um, idealistic. I fear that I strayed from your question uh, quite a great deal, so I apologise for that. Okay, I I got two two things from what you said there. So the idea of socialism has evolved and changed over time. So originally it was the workers control the means of production, that's the original. And I think if you, if you talk to any sort of uh, knowledgeable academic socialist, they'll agree that that's it. And then I think perhaps beginning with Marx, we have this transition into this idea that an authoritarian state uh, sort of takes over as, as a sort of a beneficial trustee to the working class and and takes control and uh, make, makes the orders and is, is essentially controls the means of production and distribution uh, centrally um, but I think we agree that it is a, it, the essence of it is it's about egalitarianism um, and that's at least even with Marxism the theoretical objective uh, but the problem I think and we'll come on to this later is that Marxism seems to be a, a con actually quite a contradiction of socialism. Um, is there any common ground between the socialist theories or ideas and libertarianism? Is, is there any well any take kind of thing we can agree on? Yeah, I mean, if the the libertarian or classic liberal view holds that um, you know the individual as not to be sacrificed to the collective, that um, the individual is the smallest minority, and therefore we're big on civil liberties. The government should not be able to snoop on your emails, but you should be allowed to keep checks on the government. The left agree with us on that. For the same reason we're for a non-interventionist foreign policy, we don't want to go around being the policemen of the world, and the left are on board with that, we believe in um, separation of the church and state um, for the same reason. And um, the, the, the thing is, um, another area where we agree on, of, of course, uh, ending the drug war, more people on the left are interested in that than people on the right. Where another point of disagreement or agreement that we have that is that the government should not get together with big business in order to prejudice the game boards in favor of the rich and powerful or those or who are the owning class. The problem is we have a disagreement on the origins of this 
situation, which is the left believe that it's the fact that these corporations exist and that they're big and powerful and expensive, which is the problem, and they put that down to the free market. Whereas we say, if you have a government that has the power to regulate the economy, that has the power to choose who can and cannot trade, who can and cannot sell to whom, and in what terms, and then you're always going to have a certain class of people who are going to go to the government and use its ability to regulate, to regulate in their favour. So the left believe that the government is there to mitigate the excesses of capitalism, and we believe that the government creates the excesses of capitalism. So where we both agree that the government should not be in bed with big business, and maybe we can make progress by working together on that issue, ultimately we disagree on what causes the abuse. And of course Adam Smith is, is one of the, uh, the, the sort of classical liberals that thought about this problem. I think Bastiat uh, probably had something to say about it too. But there is yes, even wrong. Yeah, their whole point of their uh, philosophy uh, or economic theories was that the government, in collusion with, I think, at the with the merchants, the big merchants at the time and big manufacturers, were engineering uh, through through the parliamentary use of um, statutes, uh, prohibitions, and things like the tariffs and so forth to favour uh, certain industrialists. So, and Smith was opposed to this. He thought, uh, he believed in a common good, which I think is something that classical liberals share with the socialists. I'm, I'm a bit suspect of the theory of yes. common good. Um, but, but clearly there's um, something wrong when the state is protecting individual sort of uh, businessmen's uh, wealth, essentially. Uh, and that, yes. can't, that can't be in the interest of most people as consumers and members of society. No, and it also biases the whole market because on a free market, which is what the I think that the left would benefit from understanding better, is the only way that you can make money is by producing something that someone else wants that improves their life that they want to pay for. But as soon as you have the option of A, produce something that people want, B, lobby the government, as soon as B will get you a higher profit than A, the government becomes your client and you start figuring out how to get resources from the government rather than by serving your customers. And that creates massive amounts of waste. We have all these accountants, lawyers, lobbyists, um, actuaries and things like that who are basically involved in the business of trying to manipulate resources out of government. Uh, that's a, it's a waste of money paying those people and it's also a waste of their time because they're not actually producing anything that improves the life, lives of everyone else. Right, so there's, there's inefficiencies present in the, economic, the crony capitalist economic system. That's so right, I, that's right. I, I, but I, the thing, but the problem, i just like to say that what we have is commonly referred to as capitalism, including this crony capitalism and this um, the, the government being used to serve big business. That would be okay if the word capitalism was applied 
consistently to mean the system we have. But usually what you find is people criticize this capitalism, this system that we have, and use it to attack the free market. In other words, uh, the ideology that we should just uh, exchange goods voluntarily, free from coercion. So that's a bit of um, a rhetorical ploy to identify features of the current system and blame markets for them when actually it's a product of government being in bed with big business to monopolize and manipulate the markets. In fact, capitalist theorists like Adam Smith, uh, again, they were, they were very aware of this. This is specifically why they wanted to establish free markets to break down the corruption. They, it was called mercantilism, I think, at the time. That's right. Uh, which, which is this collusion between the government and, and big business. Uh, and it's an old story, and capitalism was a, was a liberal economic theory uh, in the classic, it's a classical liberal theory. We have to call it classical liberal now, but at the time it was, it was just called liberalism. Um, so this, this really is, is what capitalism is all about, challenging this, this collusion and uh, sort of economical and interest incest between the, the rich, the powerful, and, and the state. So perhaps we could go through, and uh, I've got quite a few things that I'd like to produce uh, some, some critiques of. So the first one is, is socialism actually contrary to human instinct? Because it seems very hard to get socialism to work. And I, I'm actually, I, I, I stumbled across quite an interesting uh, presentation, and I'll probably link to it uh, under this one, uh, actually saying that hierarchy is kind of a natural thing and that we, we naturally um, divide our tasks and responsibilities towards people that we, we think are best suited to do things. Um, so this idea of egalitarianism might actually be contrary to, to something biological in us, in our, our uh, evolutionary psychology that we can't really do away with um, and therefore, there's this kind of a, a sense of, of it's never going to work. Have you got any ideas about that? Well, it could be. I'm always very skeptical when people say things about human nature because it seems like the main thing about human nature is human nature is adaptation to environment. The reason why we're so successful is because we've got the most ability to adapt to our environment of any other species. So it's very hard to do experiments, especially when we've got these authoritarian schools that shape us for 11 to 13 years. Um, it, I think the reason why, there's a difference between authority and authoritarian. Um, you know, if I say this fellow over here is an authority on biology, you understand me that he knows more on biology than almost anyone else does. He has earned his authority. And I think that it's natural for people in the absence of coercion to want to defer to people who have expertise. So do you call that a hierarchy, well, it's certainly a hierarchy in terms of knowledge, but it's not a hierarchy in terms of someone being forced at the point of a gun to accept this person as an authority. 
the authoritarian is what we see when we implement socialism from the top down, where you have a bunch of central planners who are assumed to be the experts who know or can figure out what people want and need and can provide that to them. And I would suggest that the reason why, cap why socialism always fails is because no one has the information to make those decisions on in behalf of other people. People have constantly changing needs and preferences and a central planner cannot have that information. Now a socialist will come back and say, well corporations are also centrally planned, they're authoritarian, they're, 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 they're built in a pyramid structure and yes many of them are, but the thing is their solutions are tested by consumers. In other words, if what that central plan produces is not liked enough for people to spend their, their um, limited resources on, and people's limited resources is about as good a measure of their preferences as anything, except for maybe how they spend their time, um, that is tested by whether people are willing to buy it or not. Whereas the central planners, the authoritarians, the, the, the real hierarchy in the state, they do not have their plans tested against consumers. It's one size fits all. So consumers have a choice between all the sodas in the market or having a coffee or having a tea or having fruit juice. And about the right amount of drinks are, are produced to serve people's needs. Uh, I would say that it's more hierarchical and authoritarian to have the government decide what drinks, but maybe we're uh, people should consume, but maybe we're talking uh, cross purposes here. I don't know what human nature is. I would like to see um, an experiment where people are not, uh, are basically not molded by society but society encourages them and gives them opportunities to explore and find out what they like and then we can find out uh, whether human nature is authoritarian or egalitarian or a combination between both. Yeah, I, I think we can probably look at, at history uh, and the period prior to the state to get a bit of a feeling about that. I think one of the most basic uh, human instincts is the desire to control your own body and choose what you do with it, and also sure. to, and also to keep the product of, of your labour. So if if you chop some wood, then you kind of want to decide what happens to that wood. I mean, and right. if, you, if you look at any number of animals, like like if a dog catches captures some prey and it's it's got you know it's got this bone or corpse or whatever, and you try and take it away to redistribute redistribute it. Um, the dog's not going to like that. You're going to get your arm mauled or something. And you, you can say that for lions or bears um, and, and for other creatures that acquire property in one way or another. Uh, although we can have another discussion about you know whether a, a corpse is property, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and, and go off into animal rights and so forth. But essentially, some animals do acquire property in terms of natural resources that they capture or control. And they don't like somebody else coming along and just taking it away from them. So I, I think that there's got to be something in there, uh, primitive, in, basically that uh, yes. oppose other people telling us what to do and taking our stuff. And uh, to me, 
those are, are fundamental problems with, with communism. Right. Well, basically, if you own yourself, um, and if you don't own yourself, who does own you, I want to know, um, then you own your actions and the effects of your actions. If you go and smack someone in the face, you're responsible for that, and people are liable to hold you responsible for that. If you go out and plant an apple tree and you make that, you water it every day, when uh, it takes a couple of years for the apples to come out, um, you're entitled to the consequence of your efforts. You're entitled to those apples which would not other exist if not for you, unless you decide to abandon them or leave them there for other people, which you can also do if you want. Um, I think that is um, natural law. Now, people will not like it when you say natural law because they'll go, you're just pulling that out of your butt. But uh, it's nothing mystical or... or um, or anything like that. I just when I say that, I just mean it's just how the the human psyche works, or how societies tend to form around and have always tended to have some form of uh, of property rights because it's it's understood um, that people own the consequences of their actions. And if you don't think that they allow some form of property rights, they definitely believe that people own the consequences of their actions when those people do something that they don't like and they want to to enforce consequences against them for that purpose. There does seem to be some kind of an inconsistency you know, in the way that socialists, or maybe we should just say the left, uh, look at things like that. So whenever there's... Um, something beneficial being produced, somehow it should be collectively uh, appropriated, but whenever there's something bad going on, then, well, it seems to be the individuals or, or a class that's doing it. Well, yeah, it depends on the class. If it's someone who's doing well, then it's all their fault. If it's someone that's doing badly, then it's society's fault. Um, and uh, people have more compassion and uh, for people who are causing immense harm to others, then for people who, you know, just work really hard uh, and manage to make a decent life for themselves, I've noticed. Now, I mean, I've got compassion for uh, criminals as well. I, I think we should have a justice system that's based on rehabilitation where possible, not retribution. However... I've noticed that a lot of people on the left just think if someone's successful, they're automatically a scumbag or a parasite. Uh, you know, I've had this conversation, I've seen this conversation transpire on um, Facebook where I said people were complaining about CEO pay. And I said, well, look, the reason why CEOs get paid so much is because there's hardly anyone with the kinds of skills that they have. If, if the company could pay them less, they would. They, they're maybe getting £200,000 or something like that because they're making their company 10 times that and they don't know anyone else who can do, do it for cheaper. Uh, if there were a thousand times as many people who had those skills, then they'd get cheaper pay. And you could address that through the, the education system. They'd get lower pay and the whole society would benefit from having a thousand times as many skilled people to administrate things and the response was yeah or a, or a thousand times as many bloodsuckers you know and that, that people don't actually understand there's a massive 
lack of respect for industriousness amongst people who are not industrious. And I would not put myself in the category of someone who's default industrious, right? But, you know, people, t- you, you don't know what people were complaining about footballers pay. You don't know what it takes to go to become someone that can get paid to do to play football for a living. You can't have a piece of cake without thinking if that's going to, um, you know, affect your performance. You have to make every single decision in your life around that. You might not even end up getting a job in the end because it's so competitive after doing all that work. Plus, one injury finished, and it can be finished in your 20s. I met someone who used to play football professionally, and they had an injury, and now they can't play anymore. They're in their mid-20s, and you know all they have to do is coach. That's incredibly difficult. It's incredibly difficult to mold yourself into the kind of person that can do something which um, commands a high pay, basically. And I don't think that's very much respected by the egalitarians. Yeah, and I think one of the problems is, and this could be kind of an instinctual thing as well, the sense of unfairness. Uh, because I even found in like dogs, which are of course social animals, live in packs. Yeah. That if if they're if if the sort of um, in this case the human, but but in in a, in the wild pack it would be whoever was like the alpha male. If they give more attention or favour to one particular individual or set of individuals, then the other dogs know when that's unfair, when when there's an undue amount of attention they're, they're aware mm-hmm. of a uh, favoritism and I, I i wonder if that instinct could be involved in socialism as well because we keep getting this uh, theme of of envy of of success and envy of of wealthy people uh, like you say and and it, it it's i don't know it's too much of a ongoing and common theme not to suspect that there's something maybe a bit deeper psychologically involved in that? Uh, Yeah, I can disagree. Um, I think it does beggar some people's belief or or that some people can be extraordinarily wealthy while there's still people starving. Um, But first of all, on a free market, people who are extraordinarily wealthy did not create the starving person, so A, it's not their fault that other people are starving, and this is the zero-sum game fallacy. People believe that people get wealthy by harming other people. Actually, on a free market, at least, I can't talk for this crony capitalist system, if the only way to make a fortune is by creating things that other people want, you're actually improving people's lives and getting richer in proportion to what you do it's actually the poor that make the rich that choose the rich by buying their products and uh, the poor are benefiting most from those products which come down in price over time and it's usually this uh, market system if we look at the countries that are doing the best in reversing poverty india china bangladesh um they are actually implement they're reversing socialist policies and embracing more free markets so so free markets enrich the poor 
Yeah, and I, so yeah, it does look. That's quite important because it does look. That feeds into our other desire, which is to feel more materially uh, safe and and less under stress. And so we yeah. can we can, we can yeah. sort yeah. of alleviate that uh, envy and that desire um, to be as good as or, or, or get or get better. Um, the free market can help people to do that and therefore appeal to this other instinct we have, which which is to better ourselves. Or we, I don't know, maybe that is an instinct, maybe not everybody does have that, but I kind of suspect they do. I think, I think everyone has the instinct to better themselves. Unfortunately, the society has uh, closed many of the traditional roads for that, and also um, by the time you're done being forced to do what you're told when you're told every day for 13 years you're so fed up of forcing yourself to do things it's hard to muster your energy to to do the things that you really want to do your own sense of where you want to go has been compromised so yeah people do look at the rich and think it's unfair that they have so much more money and yet we have all these nonsense statistics trotted out about inequality. I think Oxfam put out a paper saying eight people own as much wealth as the bottom 50%, which is nonsense. The only wealth they were counting was like uh, owned accommodation against, um, I don't know the statistics, you can find out from a guy called Leon Lowe, that's L-O-U-W, he debunked it, but basically he found out that their combined wealth, if you take in all the factors, was 420 billion, which is equal to the amount of peanuts, uh, the value of peanuts in the third world. So the poorest people in the world have the same amount of wealth as them, and peanuts alone, that isn't uh, counting their mobile phones and the social services and things they can. So people appeal to this sense of injustice in order to promote socialism with faulty statistics. When if you actually look at the the real view, in Western countries, we've never had it so equal in our lives. You have a flush toilet, a rich person has a flush toilet. You have a bed, a rich person has a bed. You have access to TV and internet, rich person has access to TV and internet. You have access to information, rich person has access to information. In the past, you'd have to walk everywhere and a rich person would have a carriage with six horses. Now, even poor people have cars. Okay, it might not be a Maserati, but you cannot deny that in real terms, the standard of living has never been so equal throughout all of history. It could be better, but the solutions that socialists want will have the reverse effect of what they're after. For example, most of the socialist solutions are short-term solutions. So you want to redistribute the wealth from the rich to the poor. The poor will go to the shops, spend their money, and the money will go back to the rich again. It's like taking water from the deep end of the swimming pool and putting it in the shallow end, spilling half of it along the way. You want to raise the minimum wage. Okay, that might help some workers that have jobs in the short term. In the long term, you're going to make it impossible for rich people to afford to train, or for employers, most of whom aren't rich, to train their staff. I'm not going to pay someone £10 an hour to do to earn me nothing, but I might 
pay them five pounds an hour and then once they've got the skills I'll eat I'll pay them more because they're earning me money or they can leave and work for someone else who will pay them more so the unfortunate thing is the the socialist solutions look superficially pleasing to the ego and think yeah let, let's tax those greedy rich people or, or let but they don't solve the underlying problem which is that people do not have the skills that they need to earn for themselves they feel psychologically scared by that fact and so they want the state to um, to come and save them when actually the state has done so much to exacerbate the situation indeed uh, one of uh, you reminded me of one of um, I think it was Tolstoy's criticisms of taxation he, he, he said that uh, the taxation and redistribution of wealth was, was something like fanning, you know, fanning the heat down to the poor, and then of course it would just rise up again, and, and the money would just go back uh, to to the wealthy, um, because really it, it hasn't changed the the dynamics of the game at all. Uh, so socialism is a, is is a superficial uh, approach to changing society. Another another topic I think is challenging is the idea of trust. So um, we saw this in utopian uh, socialist experiments. Uh, like if somebody was ill and therefore their productivity went down, you, it was like, well, how do you know when they're ready to go back to work? How can you trust people uh, in that situation? Because people just might be less productive and, and continually decide, well, I'm. If I'm going to get um, if I'm going to get all my needs met. Well, I don't need to work so hard. So, and inevitably, I mean, if you look at the German Democratic Republic, that ended up, I think, with something like sixty or seventy percent of the population becoming police informants. So the, this this mistrust of each other slowly went up and up and up until everybody was watching everybody, and society just became ridiculously ridiculously oppressive. What do you think about that issue of trust? Well, there's a concept called moral hazard, which is that um, in a state of nature, so to speak, if you do bad things, then there's negative consequences for that. If you're an asshole to everyone around you, then people aren't going to turn around and help you when you're in need. If you... Um, eat badly and get obese then you'll, your health will suffer and you'll feel bad and you're, you might have large medical expenses or whatever. I think that socialism removes moral hazard because people are now entitled to what they would otherwise have to cooperate with others to receive and I believe that it's that you know a lot of people do want to cooperate with others anyway but in the last case you want the interests of the individual to align with the interests of those around them and despite what the left believe the market is a really great tool for doing that because as I said on a free market you can only uh, enrich yourself uh, to the degree that you enrich others you can either make stuff for yourself which will help you or you can make stuff for other people and they'll pay you for that and that means that the more you serve others, the more you will get paid. Now, people say, well, what about the people cleaning the toilets and things like that? They're, they're, they're doing an essential job and they get poor pay. Yes, that is true. 
but it's because anyone can do that job. So while it is a very valuable job, there is an overabundance of supply in that sector, and that's not a bad thing. That signal, that's a signal to people that if they get more skills and do a job that fewer people can do, um, then they will, they will, they will, they will receive more because those other jobs are of a higher need to other people. It's directing people's efforts in the direction they want. Now, if you happen to to like cleaning toilets and you don't like brain work, then you you can take your choice. You can admit lower pay and stay in that position. Um, and uh, but 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 this is the thing. The, the price signals will give you an idea of what society wants and what society needs. And it's up to you to decide wh whether you'd rather stay in your comfort zone or, um, or take some risks, acquire some skills. And on a free market, it would be much easier to acquire those skills because um, anyone could employ anyone at any time and teach them anything. Now that might mean that some people are admitting lower pay in the short term, but in the long term, it means that people would have more options. And if you had a crappy boss, you just leave, walk across the street and walk into another job. So there would be moral hazard for bosses as well, because any other staff could leave at any time and be assured of getting a, a job somewhere else, which would create the incentive to, uh, treat staff better than they're currently treated when there's not enough jobs to go around. Okay. Um, the next thing I've got down is productivity. And one of the things we, we mentioned before, um, that you, you can have socialist um, businesses or, or activities going on, but they don't seem to be as productive as, as the capitalist uh, model. And I, th I think we've, we've, we've covered that um, this could be to do with sort of inefficiencies, management inefficiencies. Uh, just wondered if there was anything you, more you wanted to add to that. I mean, if we think about uh, communist, uh, you know, USSR or any of these other societies, they didn't seem to be as productive as, as the West right. with its capitalistic, uh, you know, not, not fully capitalist, but capitalistic yeah. economic system. Is there anything to add around that? Yeah, well, it just comes back to property rights. In the Soviet Union, there was about 4 to 6% of land that was allowed to be privately owned, and that uh, turned out 25% of the whole country's food production. Because, see, if people aren't allowed to keep what they make, believe it or not, people do respond to incentives, and they're likely to become less productive. Now, the Soviets tried to compensate for this by, by giving incentives and, and things like that to, to boost productivity. You know, they became more ca crony capitalists than the capitalists did. Of course, that failed because the government has no idea what to incentivize and what the incentive should be. Society does that naturally through the price system, which I dis just discussed. It incentivizes people to do the work that's most desired and not do the work that's least desired. Now, people can still do that work, of course, if, it, if it's a value to them. But um, the, the communism is just always going to lead to massive shortages of some things and overproduction of other things because no one has the information to dictate what needs to be produced and what doesn't. That um, 
information is evenly distributed between all consumers and without price signals and people buying and selling, producers just don't know what's needed. Do you, do you think there's any other reasons why the socialist economies were not as productive? Uh, no, I think it's this central planning problem, the calculation problem again. And uh, yeah, it's incentives uh, and if you take away people's incentive to be more productive, then well, naturally they respond by not being so productive. And I think and the, also on the, the empirical data is there now. If you look, you've got the USSR, you've got the other uh, Eastern European experience. Now we have Venezuela. Um, the the productivity just isn't there. And at the end of the day, although high productivity does make the rich richer, it's also you know those goods and things have to be sold. They have to to go out uh, and be consumed and raise the quality of, of, of life, the living standards uh, for more people. So I, I just think the empirical, you know, it, it's, it's an experiment that's been done to death. And, and ah, but John, that wasn't real communism. <laughs> yeah. So we're, we're told. Yes, yeah, we, we're, we're told it was uh, state capitalism, which is an interesting sort of... Uh, one they've added in now that it's all collapsed. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what that means. That means whatever we like is socialism, whatever we don't like is capitalism. In fact, at the beginning of this video, uh, when you asked me what does capitalism mean, sorry, what does socialism mean, I should have said socialism is whatever's good. Socialism is whatever we like, right? Capitalism is whatever we don't like. Automatically, capitalism caused it. Yeah, of course, that's just that's, so. It's not a consistent philosophy, is it? That's that's just uh, flim flam. It, it, it's 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 uh, changing your tune to to suit whatever whatever comes up. Just uh, just change the language, right. basically. There's no, no consistency in exactly you know, principles involved exactly. in thinking at all. Could we get on to this issue of uh, property, uh, personal versus private? Because uh, this is something that comes up. Uh, quite a lot in, in anarchist uh, thinking, um, right. but of course it's from socialism. You know, some things like our toothbrushes and our flannels and towels and, I don't know, maybe even our houses, I'm not even sure about that. They're, socialists consider that to be, to be personal property, um, whereas like a factory or a building that's, or somewhere that's used for people that come together and make things, somehow that, that's, the capitalists have made that into private property, whereas that should actually, according to socialists, be collective property. But what do you make about right. theories of property? So the socialists differ from capitalists. Capitalists believe in private property, um, which is just whatever you make or justly acquire is yours. Yeah. Um, that's my understanding of it anyway. Right. Um, whereas socialists think, well, if lots of people come together and make something, then those, everyone involved in making that thing should have a bit of a say in it and no individual should, should sort of benefit from it exclusively. Anything to say about that? Any criticisms of that socialist idea collectively? Well, there's no, there's no line between a means of production and personal property. This laptop is a means of production for this presentation. You know, uh, everything could be a means of production. A book that I read could help me, 
you know, create something. And of course, the original means of production is the human mind, from which all other from which all production originates. So if you're saying no one has a right to the means of production, that means you're saying no one has a right to the use of their own mind. Now, this idea that um, capitalists are somehow exploiting wor uh, workers or unjustly benefiting by acquiring a factory, if you want to do away with that, well, and just say, well, you're only allowed personal property, then people will just not buy factories. They'll just um, go on a cruise instead. The fact is the capitalists has deferred consumption. They've not done something that they might enjoy, taken a holiday, bought their wife a diamond ring or their husband a sports car, right? They've deferred that. They've uh, invested in something which may or may not work. Now, one big investment is now property and people think there's something exploitative about landlords owning property. And in the current situation, that is to a degree true because the government has made it so um, hardly anyone can build any houses and house prices rose by 4,255% between the 1971 and 2011 in the UK. And so, so what, what these excesses are created by government, not by the free market. market. The, the housing market's actually a great example of mechanicalism of, again. The thing that, yes. that, that uh, Adam Smith, you know, would have would have gone crazy about in the way that the government uh, has passed endless statutes to regulate where you can build a property, how you can build it, what you can put up, who can build it, um, what how many people are allowed yeah. to stay in it? Yeah, like every aspect of property, uh, even down to the who can borrow money, how much money you can buy, how much money is produced, what the interest rate is. The whole thing of the property market is a gigantic government program. Yes, and that's cre that's created poverty, but you don't hear the left speaking about it, which it concerns me. So, one of your um, to return to the original point, I was speaking to an anarchist communist that said, I've nothing against you having your laptop to make podcasts. What I would have something against is if you had a hundred laptops and were charging people to use them to make podcasts. Now, I'm sorry, but that is just stupid, right? If yeah, you decide We're getting on to, to the spend, yeah, my next topic, yeah. which which is about lending. Um, this seems to be yeah. another, another uh, uh, bugbear for socialists. They don't like money. They don't like people having, oh, what's the phrase that gets used? Um, like hoarding, I think, is the word they use. Uh, and, then, and they don't like lending, and they don't like interest, and they don't like profit. So, yeah, what's, what's wrong with this, these dislikes? Because... Um, okay. On a, on a personal and individual level, well, I'm sure they're perfectly okay with like Adam uh, lending his hammer to Fred so that Fred can put a shelf up and then Adam saying to Fred, well, hey, buy us a beer because I lent you my hammer. So they're, they're okay with things like that. But like if you had two hammers or is it three or is it five or is it a hundred that you were lending and some, at some point they 
somehow something's gone wrong and, and there's immorality. I don't understand that. Do you understand? Yeah. Well, it's just they think that someone's profiting without having contributed anything, but you are, right? Supposing I could get 100 laptops and rent them out to podcast makers, uh, I would have just identified that there was a bunch of people who wanted to make podcasts but couldn't afford the equipment. Let's get rid of the 100 laptops. Let's just imagine I created a studio in New York, Podcaster's Paradise, right? And uh, I said, you come in, use the equipment, you'll sound great, okay? I'm helping because they can't afford to do it on their own. Now, they'd have to wait a long time if they put the money away. I could instead invest in something else. The thing is that I didn't, or I could just go on holiday instead. If I'm not allowed to rent out my studio, you've removed the incentive for someone to come in and see the need for that. And it goes no different with money, right? There's loads of things I could do in my with my money. I could invest in Freedom Philosophy TV and hope that you're going to get some advertising. I could put it into the stock market. I could put it into property, right? I don't have to lend it to people, right? But if there's a need for people to borrow it and they're willing to pay the interest, then it's fair that they pay me for everything I'm not doing that I could be doing with that money. Yeah. I and mean, by it, allowing... It appears to me that, that lending is actually a positive thing and that the more you can lend is not worse, but actually better. It's the, the, the economics are the other way around. Yes, and also, if I've got a thousand pounds and a bunch of people who want to borrow it for a new business, uh, let's say a hundred thousand pounds, because that's not going to get them very far, it's better that I lend it to the person who can pay the most interest because they are likely to have the best idea for a business. What's the best idea for a business? The one that creates that something that people want the most. So there's all these mechanisms built into a free market, which are essentially fail-safes that um, direct resources in the direction that people want, people as consumers want. And what Marxists don't get is that every producer is a consumer. So um, things being cheap, uh, capitalists pushing, uh, Marxists were afraid of capitalists pushing the prices of production down so that um, included including wages but what they don't understand is when they're pushing the price of production down everything becomes cheaper and therefore more affordable so even if you're on the same wage your wage can buy more which is how capitalism has enriched the poor throughout history. Um, uh, again, I feel like I, I stray from the point. There's a really good essay on this topic by Bastiat called Capital and Interest, and he explains why interest is not exploitative. Um, and that's that's worth worth listening. Well, that's worth it's reading. It's great. I mean, a lot of these topics have, and Mises again goes into a lot of this. A lot of these topics really have been looked at in detail uh, by by classical liberals and. It's just like, well, so, and some of this is like centuries, you know, it's like over a century old kind of thing. It's like, well, do these people just not bother to read uh, well, the, the, what the other side have to say about these things and engage in any kind of, of 
uh, critical and rational debate about it because it's, it, I found this infuriating. You know, I have a, a background in science and I'm interested in re yeah. reason, evidence, uh, argument, uh, and empiricism. And to me, capitalism has some of those aspects. Uh, and I don't see them in socialism. Socialism seems to be all about the feels of things. Um, and there are some economic theories there, but they all seem to be, you know, when you check them out, they just, they look, they're bogus. Yeah, and yet they consider themselves to be the rational ones that have the answers. Well, they weren't expecting a bunch of well-informed libertarians to suddenly appear on the internet over the last eight years. And right now they're kind of reeling by the fact that for decades the left have just been talking amongst themselves. Do we have this kind of socialism or this? When we get the government, should the government have this policy or that policy? And they've just been tuning up their kinds of socialism uh, uh, rather, and, and they weren't prepared to actually deal with reason and evidence and hence why, you know, all these, um, they assumed they'd won in academia. Uh, which is amazing when you consider that they haven't won in the real world and every time uh, a socialist country happens, it's an economic disaster. But I think the reason is people still look and see that we've not solved many of the maladies in our own society. We still have homelessness, we still have um, people who don't get access to health care or um, people who are working in dead-end jobs and that they don't enjoy, which, I mean, okay, suck it up because a couple of hundred years ago, uh, you wouldn't have had any thought that you'd have a funner job, so you just get out in the farm and work. But but the, but the, the problem is people aren't seen as having any opportunities um, to transcend being in that position. And that's falsely attributed to capitalism. Um, I think a lot of our problems are created by government because without government, there's no, sorry, without those problems, there's no grounds for government. If everyone was so rich, they could afford to educate their own children, have private health care and um, afford their own house and the, the shopping and uh, um, have healthy meals then the need for government disappears. People are like, what, you know, what do we need the state for? Everyone can get their own stuff. So the thing is, when you look at what the government's done to the cost of housing, how the government um, forbids us from buying food from the poorest countries in the world or other products, which is particularly insidious to the people on low incomes who can really benefit from getting cheap goods, uh, printing money, which devalues the currency and means that people's wages can buy less. It also discourages saving and encourages taking on debt. Um, the fact that the average person spends 20 to 25 years working for the government uh, to pay their taxes, um, they cartelize essential services like public transport so only two or three companies can operate whereas on a free market anyone would be able to take anyone from a to b and like, they put all okay yeah might be worth mentioning uber there and, and uh yeah technology yeah. and lift and that because there have been some free market responses to this yeah uh yes 
Yes. And it's been interesting uh, watching the, the sort of edges uh, of, of these situations uh, fall to pieces and, and the taxi drivers getting upset about things, etc. Et yeah. Do you want to go into yeah. that a little bit more? Because I think that's quite interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, this is another example of the government cracking down on people taking opportunities. Oh, no, sorry, you can um, drive an Uber without a license um, or without... Um, and I think some state tried to pass a law on the minimum amount of time before Uber responded to something because they were being competitive. This is more uh, more mercantilism, more... Now, the sum total of all these things is... The, stand, the cost of living is much higher than it would otherwise be. Um, and so people do not ha uh, climb out of state dependency, right? If the cost of living went down substantially, uh, as it would if we had free trade, as it would if the government got out of housing and the other areas that I've said, People on low incomes would start doing what middle class people do, which is sending their kids to private school and buying their own health insurance. That's the first thing that people start doing, a better future for my kids and better health care. Now, that would quickly reveal how bad the public schools are when working class people could afford to send their kids to better schools and it would undermine the legitimacy of the state. What's more, when poor people started getting their own health coverage, they'd realize that uh, when they try and get their services on the NHS, they're put on a waiting list. There's a million people on NHS waiting lists and that they could get much better care in the private sector. And then that would undermine the need for government to provide health care. So the government can't allow people's incomes or uh, to rise too much because they'll start divesting from state services. So what they have to do is they can't just control the public education system and the healthcare system. They also have to massively, massively regulate private provision of schools and hospitals so that only rich people and elites can afford them which is of course what they want because they want to send their kids to the best schools, don't they? They just want working class people not to no longer be dependent on the state. Now the left doesn't talk about um, all the things that the government is doing to drive the cost of living through the roof because they're focused on capitalists and the rich. I once coined the phrase, if socialists cared as much about poor people being poor as they do about rich people being rich, they'd be libertarians. Yeah. <laughs> um, exactly. yeah. So, but I don't, even though I say that cynically, if socialists cared as much about the poor being poor as they care about the rich being rich, they'd be libertarians. I don't think that's the case in most cases. I think most people have been given the wrong coordinates. And it's really important that we st start writing articles. I've got one. You can go to scottishlibertarians.com forward slash the poor uh, on what libertarianism can do for the poor. And please, anyone watching that, share that around. Because until we get the government out um, making 
the standards of living more expensive, which will make the way for poverty. We've got really no chance of liberalizing the economy in other areas because people are just too scared. They want security. So until they see that uh, there's a lot less poor people and the poor people are being provided for, they're gonna they're gonna want big government. Absolutely, uh, and um, you, you talk about education. There, it's reminded me that there's been this, uh, I, I guess, um, growth of unionism. Um, I, I know it's it's on the decline and, and retracting, and has been for a while. Um, but certainly after the war and in the 60s, 70s, lots of people joined unions, and the unions colluded with the state and and earned or gained certain legal rights. Um, and in a sense, they became a, a corporate force. The unions became a corporate force, and they got special interests. I, I know this because uh, my parents were uh, local government officers. The like the pension schemes, and the, particularly for the high up management, the golden handshakes and things like that. I mean, the perks for working for the government uh, in these unionised government sectors were phenomenal compared to the, the, the private sector. Yeah. Um, so it's it, it's very like the things they criticise the capitalists yeah. for. Yeah, completely taken over and done those things no. themselves. I mean, it's they, all it's a projection. It's it's like it is. It's, yeah. it's so sad. Yeah, because that this is a thing. Someone providing someone a wage is seen as exploitative. However, someone taking their wage at the point of a gun through the tax system is not perceived as exploitative. That is how crazy socialism is. I'm sorry for any socialism's what watching, but check your prejudices, not your yeah. privilege, right? It's just like that, yeah, it's, it's there's a big difference between there's a big difference between a private sector union and a public sector union. A public sector union is a union in a monopoly service, right? So they have an unfair advantage of being able to hold the entire country to ransom. In the private sector, unions can have some valid purposes. For example, they can um, make sure that um, their employees are getting what they're worth. They can, by comparing what their employees are getting paid across the entire economy and saying, well, this guy over here is doing the same job, but is getting paid 20 pence an hour or less. They can make information available. They can provide um, relief to union members who've lost their jobs uh, as they used to do. But if they start going to the government and trying to get the government to enforce their conditions at the point of a gun, then they're overstepping the mark. They should act as negotiators and mediators between their workers and their employers. And they should work together to get um, the best deal for everyone involved. And there are some cases of that happening in the old days before these unions turned into lobby groups that go to the government to get laws passed instead of um, engaging in a voluntary way between their employees and their empl um, the people they're advocating for. Absolutely agreed on that. Um, we Co-ops are quite interesting because co-ops can be, be quite socialist and of course you don't need unions in co-ops because effectively uh, it is a, a, a collective uh, where everything's done by consensus. One of the things I've noticed about uh, these socialist models um, 
usually like co-ops are like the health food stores, uh, their, their bookshops, uh, maybe their funeral providers or some kind of credit company. You don't see any co-ops producing silicon chips or aircraft. Right. There's something like there's some evidence there that the egalitarian model has some kind of a, a limitation to to uh, what what you can do, and maybe that comes back to the lack of education stuff you spoke about earlier, lack of business experience. But there seems to be some limitation on, on what you can do with the socialist or, or cooperative model. Um, like I say, it's not producing a silicon chip or a, uh, an Airbus or something like that. Have you you've got any idea why that might be or what causes that limitation? Well, you could be right. It could be something inherent in the, uh, the model. But, you know, I'm all for it. It's voluntary. As long as it's voluntary, as they, long as they don't want to force every business to... Um, adopt that model. Let many flowers bloom. Let's try these things out and see what works and doesn't work. The entrepreneur Ricardo Semler, who wrote the book Maverick, um, which I recommend you read, um, proved that he could become a millionaire using a decentralized model in his business and then went all over the world teaching other people to do it. If you can get it to work, I'm all for it. But at the end of the day, it's up to the consumer to decide. And if you produce good stuff, the consumer does not care if you're a top-down hierarchical organization or if you're a cooperative. You know, At the end of the day, everyone's a consumer. The consumer is God. And you are a consumer. Everyone listening is. And at the end of the day, just because you like Coca-Cola, you don't have to ban everyone else from drinking Pepsi. And if you like neither of them, then you can get a fair trade orange juice or something like that. I'm all for it. The thing is, the problem with socialism is the one size fits all way of looking at things and uh, having people try to decide what people should and shouldn't consume. And that always ends in disaster, no matter how well intentioned. Well, I, I look at, um, I, I'm quite a, an avid uh, sort of health food shopper. I suppose I'm a bit sort of hippie in that way, but um, I, I quite like these fair trade things and, and uh, niche products. But I've noticed that the health food stores are not marketing to the poorest people. The poorest people are going to places like Lidl. Um, they're going to the, to the big chains that, that uh, buy, huge, buy things in huge quantities and knock down prices so they can offer the goods very cheaply to their clients. And the people that go into these sort of co-ops and, and uh, you know, hippie shops, uh, they've actually got a bit of, bit of extra money to spend, uh, and they're buying kind of cheaply and special things, not maybe regular everyday items. So it's, it's almost like, uh, like it's its own contradiction kind of thing. It actually, it's, it's serving right. the off and not the poorest sectors of society. It's the big capitalistic organizations that are actually really helping poor people um, to get by on right. you know, a low that income. That is true. But also, I think we also need to be aware of the fact that fruits and vegetables have increased price in price faster than confectionery, even though the, they're, one is the building blocks of health and the other is, uh, destroys the quality of life. And uh, this is largely 
due to agricultural subsidies. I mean, it takes seven times as much grain to create um, one uh, the, uh, a pound of, seven pounds of grain to create one pound of beef. So why isn't beef seven times as more expensive as grain? Well, because of uh, subsidies to meat and dairy farmers, and also, um, and just just to say, obviously, uh, consumption of red meat has been implicated in various chronic illnesses, at least over over consumption thereof. So, um, what you're looking at is basically. One, we subsidize, I mean, the American government subsidizes sugar farmers. I don't know what the case is here. I don't think we can um, we can grow sugar here. They also uh, subsidize yeah, tobacco farmers, right? Then you add to that the fact that we are not allowed to import food from some of the poorest countries in the world. We could massively see the cost of healthy foods decline and people on low incomes from poor households have access to those foods if the government doesn't if the government just gets out the way now why are the left who care about the poor not talking about this well it breaks my heart yeah well it, it conflicts with their other thing the minimum wage doesn't it because that's a very popular leftist theme now um, farm workers used to be some of the lowest paid workers and of course, the benefit of being able to employ cheap labour is that that can, that that cheapness, can, the the savings can be passed on in the cost of fresh fruit and vegetables, which are a labour-intensive uh, product. Uh, so, in order for the poor to be able to to afford healthy food, you need to keep the price down, and therefore uh, you have to be able to employ uh, the cheapest labour for it. And, well, and restricted. Around restrictive labour practices and minimum wage, I think have had a, a negative impact on, on the farming sector. Absolutely, pushed the price of, of, of healthy fresh food up. Well, these people just don't understand supply and demand. The reason why farmers would get such a low wage on the free market is because there's massive overproduction of food. This is absolutely terrible for the environment. And it's the left that claim that they care so much about the environment. You don't want people growing food that's going to waste. I believe that, um, I can't remember the figure, but it might be something like we, we make enough food to feed 10 billion a year. And like, I don't know how many, I think it's still 1 billion people are starving. If that's true, we're wasting 4 billion people worth of food a year. Well, I've heard that in the West we we also uh, only consume 25% of the food we purchase. Most of it goes in the bin, uh, and there's, there's terrific waste involved in it as well. So I'm sorry, but Britain is far, should not be largely in the business of of farming. We need to remove these agricultural subsidies, let the land recover from the ravages, and um, you know, farmers. Are going to need to start retraining in new jobs. This is this sounds brutal, but it's like, look, why should a small number of people hold the entire standard of living of every poor person in the country to ransom? What you, if you want the government to help, what the government can do is give grants to farmers to retrain in other professions, and uh, before 
before removing their subsidies since they've been put into a dependent position by these government subsidies and would now have to leave the profession en masse. Whereas if we'd had a free market, they would have been able to migrate away from the profession one by one. Or, or, they, would so, have, they, would have gone, or they would have gone up market into these more niche uh, products like or, organic vegetables, right. heirloom varieties. Orchi berries. Yeah, you know, there's, there's all sorts of ways that um, businesses can sort of upscale or diversify as yeah, well. Yeah. Okay, um, yeah. great responses there. Can we move on now to Marxism? Is Marxism socialism? Because there seems to have been a bit, of, I, I, I'm not clear on this now, I don't understand it. We had, uh, the USSR was, I think, Marxist-Leninist, uh, the uh, People's uh, Republic of China, was, was Marxist-Leninist stroke Maoist. Um, so Marxism is authoritarian. That seems to be very much against the, the grain of, of grassroots socialism, which is, is egalitarianism. It's, it's almost, it's, it, no, Marxism's almost like fascism, really. It's like, well, how, 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 how has socialism evolved into, well, and now it's Marxism. It's, to me, Marxists are not socialists. They're, it's so far away from the original uh, vision of the socialists uh, that it, it, to me, I just don't understand how that Marxism has become, you know, the understood uh, expression of what socialism means today. Have you any ideas about that? Is it socialism? Well, I've never heard anyone else say that Marx was not a socialist. Um, I think... I, I agree with you that uh, the manifestation of his political philosophy has been incredibly authoritarian. Um, Marx expressed what lots of socialists around him believed in that day. I don't think he was a brilliant thinker, but he was just put into words the spirit of his time. He wasn't that famous in his own day. He got a massive in a massive argument with the socialist anarchist Bakunin, yeah. who believed that the state had to go in order for socialism to happen. And Marx said, no, we need to take over the state first, then phase the state out, which of course will never happen because once the more you empower the state, the more it's gonna to wanna to sustain itself. Everything wants to sustain itself. This yeah. is nature, right? Every plant will try and change its angle to get to the sun to sustain itself. Every animal will want its own well-being. Human beings strive to their own well-being. They want more resources. Uh, and institutions are no different. Ideologies are no different. Every ideology wants to perpetuate itself, want to share it with other people. This is just a fact of nature. And uh, this is where Marx went very badly wrong and why Marx is taught in universities, but Bakunin is not. Because um, it's favor his views were favorable to state power. Uh, was he a socialist? I think he was. I think the definition of socialism is broad enough um, to encompass Marxist theories. Um, but again, it just comes down to your definition. Well, Marx certainly, his end game really was to get to a communist society, which was certainly in line with the original utopian uh, socialist uh, direction. So I, I think his 
ideology, his intention was genuinely socialist. Um, but what arose from that kind of got corrupted uh, with the Leninism was, was, was well, uh, yeah, let's take that. It, it, it's our mission now to bring Marxism to the world. Uh, so you need to obey us now. And um, so you kind of got, it's, it's like the Tolkien's, uh, you know, the ring of power. Um, right. What, and it's what religions have done as well. You know, they've got, oh, there's the parable of this good person that did this, that, and the other. Now we as an institution need to set ourselves up and, and we'll take over and we'll, we'll deliver on this goal, um, but you have to obey us kind of thing. It's, it, it's, uh, uh, it, it, it's basically um, sort of a, a, a people who want to con just control other people uh, getting a... Let, let's say a moral smokescreen or, or a some kind of cause that they can use as their vehicle to control other people. There are idea they take they take the idea and make it into an ideology, and then it becomes a just cause. And then because it's a just cause, then it's well, well now we have the right to enforce it on people. Yeah, and I, I think that's that's what people believe you know that you can sacrifice the the moment to create a better future for everyone but in the real world means become ends your means will become your ends and i don't really believe that good ends can come of corrupt means and this is the problem that we face which is that most people don't even see use of the state as use of violence, which of course it is. And yeah. everything that the state does is based on force or the threat of force. But what makes me really sad is that people are focusing on trying to use the government to create programs that will be harmful to the poor in the long term, instead of just looking at where coercion is harming the patient, the, the, the poor. And if we could get the government out of so many of the areas that I've mentioned, like housing, if we could get free trade and so forth, standards of living would go up and people would get the things they want, like the four-day week, because people would only need to work four days to be able to afford the same kind of lifestyle they have. And all of these socialist ends can be achieved by more free markets. Um, I, I fear that's not the, the road we're going down at the moment. No, um, people... Like government has become become the hammer. And, you know, when, it, when yeah. someone's got a hammer, they're always looking for nails. You know, it's... it's right, it's, exactly. People just think, oh, what we need is another regulation. Um, and, that, and that'll fix yes. the problem. And, and then, of course, it doesn't fix the problem. It just leads to more knock-on negative effects, to which, again... Uh, well, we just need to make more regulations to fix these yeah. knock-on effects, and it, it, yes. it's like a it's like a dog chasing its tail. Yeah. It, it just it's an endless cycle of more and more legislation. Yeah. And, yeah. and whatever you know, we started law started with 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 um, a customary law at, or, and then common law, which was very simple. If, if you harm somebody or cause damage to them, then you have to make good. Uh, the damage that you had done, and that that was pretty much it. It was simple; most people understood it. And now, of course, Parliament I think passes hundreds, if not thousands, of laws every year, and and it's the 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 legislation is is colossal now. Nobody can possibly know all this stuff. 
Um, and there must be a cost or a price associated with that legislation. There must there must be a loss of efficiency and productivity in society resulting from each one of those interferences in, in, per, in, in personal freedom. No question, no question. The, the, the cost in terms of the amount of time that people spend filling in forms that they could otherwise be spending actually making stuff, um, not to mention the, the financial cost it's phenomenal and sadly no one is seeing this as a problem, very few people are seeing this as a problem. We maybe have hope now that people have actually heard the word libertarian, whereas when I became one, people in this country hadn't even heard the term. Um, but it takes a long time to study up and become a libertarian um, to, to fully understand freedom. I'm realizing now that although I've been a libertarian for maybe nine years or, or coming on to a decade, four years ago, I didn't understand freedom completely. You know, maybe, maybe in four years from now, I'll, think, I'll be thinking when I'd been a libertarian for, for 10 years, I didn't understand freedom as much as I understand it now. Um, but I, really, I just really want to hammer on this point that it's very worthwhile talking about ways getting the government out the way would help the poor because until we see those reforms there's no hope of getting government out of other areas like uh, the well i mean you can abolish the welfare state tomorrow uh, not just because you couldn't find the political will but because people are dependent on it and they would die and not only that would they riot and um, even though private charity would be able to help more people for cheaper and give them the right kind of help, help them get skills, help them improve their long-term prospects and so forth um, so that they can provide for themselves. Because the charities have got the information on the ground. And there used to be friendly societies and mutual aid societies basically uh, which existed before the welfare state and people say oh yeah but people were really poor then exactly people were really poor then and they still managed to provide welfare and yep. um, and mutual aid without the state now people are comparatively much more rich and what we would have in terms of help for the poor today if it wasn't assumed to be the government's responsibility would be far, far, far in advance of what has ever existed in history and would actually be a ladder out of poverty permanently. But if we want to see that happen, we really need to look at uh, government involvement in housing and uh, other things which drive up, drive up the cost of living. And that, this, this frustrates me, but um, in Marxism, of course, this, the state regulates everything, all manufacturing pretty much, and all distribution. Um, and of course, that's all controlled essentially through, through legislation, through regulation, cent uh, centralized, which is kind of the way our society has been going. Because we have a state yes. essentially that is run by a lawyer class. That's what politicians are. They are like an elite lawyer class that create regulations. Um, and this, this is... I mean, it's very close to Marxism in a way. Uh, it's a centralized bureaucracy, central planning, uh, and yet people are still complaining about our society being greedy, capitalist, blah, blah, blah. But it's, look, 
come on, this in every way is just like Marxism. It just so happens that Marxism, or, or central planning, let's say, not Marxism, but central planning ends up being of greater benefit to the central planners and their friends. It just And it, this is always the way, whether it happens to be the friends of the capitalists or, or whatever chosen party officials or you know manufacturers or whoever they are. Um, it, we've been going further and further away from the capitalist ideal for a, a long time. And right, we're, I mean... The we're closer to Marx's vision than we've, we've ever been before, and we're getting poorer. Right, and uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know how much, what percentage of spending is government spending in the UK, but it's something like 40%. I mean, that means we're like 40% a co communist country. So, and yet, oh, capitalism is responsible for everything. Okay, if you were a doctor and a patient came in with a lifestyle-related illness, the first thing you do is not put them on medication. The first thing you do is be like, right, let's see if you can get your diet sorted, let's get you doing some exercise, smoking less, drinking less or taking less drugs, right? And see if you're still ill, then maybe we can talk about giving you some medication. And that's my view on helping the poor in government. See, can we just please stop the government doing all these things which are uh, reducing living standards? Uh, which I talk about in my article, scottishlibertarians.com forward slash the poor. Um, see, once we get the government out the way, and if there's still poor people, then maybe we can talk about how we can use the government or how we can use coercion to help them. But could we just please start with the priority, please, of looking at how um, living standards have been systematically destroyed by the state first? You know, and that's in line with, you know, stop the patient from drinking, smoking, e eating too many unhealthy foods and not taking any exercise um, before deciding to put them on a, a bunch of medications, which are all going to have side effects and um, potentially harm their system in other ways. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, labour theory of value, kind of central... To, to Marxist thinking, I think. I, I know it, it's kind of a, a generally a socialist thing. The idea that the person who labours, who toils, who, who puts the widgets together um, creates the value. Um, and the idea originally was, you know, the, the more labour that went into something, the more, more value it had. Now, this can easily be refuted. Um, for example, let's take a fully and completely manufactured car um, deliver it to me, and then the labour that I perform on it is to smash all the windows. So that's that's additional labour, um, but I think we'd all agree that the value of the car hasn't gone up. I mean, unless I could sell it as some kind of bogus, uh, you know, art uh, kind of project or something, you know, for millions of pounds. Um, generally, most people would be agreed that that additional labour decreases the value of something. So yeah. Could you maybe, uh, I, you know, that that's just the analogy that I make and try and explain it. That the, the the value of something is not proportional to labour. It's actually no. a, a purely um, abstract and individual subjective choice. I mean, yes, obviously there are costs associated with the labour that makes something 
more labor intensive, more expensive. So like a, a disk drive is always going to be more expensive, say, than a stick um, and so forth. Uh, have you got any, any, any comments on that? If the labor theory of value is true, then you can pay someone to dig a hole, then pay someone else to fill it in, and yeah. you've made society better off. Yeah. And this is a problem that is current. This is not a historical problem because we constantly hear the government saying, oh, or people saying the government should create jobs. Obama had a massive stimulus spending program and spent $200,000 per job. Okay, if all he wanted to do was um, create jobs, why didn't he just employ eight times as many people on $25,000 a year? It was a colossal failure and a waste of money. It's not good for the government to create jobs because the only way it can do it is by taxing people, which means they have less money in their pocket to spend on stuff, which means whatever they were going to buy otherwise won't get made and that that's people out of jobs or they can print money which decreases the value of everyone's money and means they can buy less stuff so that it's less jobs and um, finally they can deficit spend and uh, kick the can down the road to the unborn uh, in the name of investing and maybe investing will grow the economy uh, and they'll be able to pay back the debt. Of course, that never happens because the government has something to gain by creating jobs with by printing money, but it doesn't have anything to gain in terms of people voting for it uh, or giving it campaign contributions if it contracts the amount of spending, which is why the deficit just seems to go up and up and up. Um, so the government can't uh, can't create jobs, and it's based on the league. Uh, it can nominally create jobs, but over the entire economy, the only thing it can do is decrease the amount of economic activity uh, and um, displace it from what people actually want with their free will choice, what they want to spend their money on on a free market, to whatever the central planners think that people want. Well, this, this was a dynamic that was very present in, in uh, I think, uh, the USSR. But like the, I think there's a, a, a sort of a, a story about this of you know only making one size of nail. You know, we're going to employ people. Right. We'll, we'll we'll make some people make some nails. Um, but as it happens, they they only like make one size of nail, which happens to be too big uh, for the kind of tiles that um, are being made. Um, so, so it's it's like okay, well, you're giving people jobs, but actually, what they're producing is not quite uh, what the consumer wants. So the consumer just has to sort of make do with this stuff. Um, and and of course, the long in the long term, uh, the, the the economic outcome is is negative and a, a decline in in productivity and wealth. I mean, we could. I think I've heard this on Stefan, it's quite a funny one. Well, well, let's just get rid of tractors, then everybody would have jobs. We'd, we'd all be, um, you know, harvesting things by hands with scythes and sickles again. And yeah, we'd all, we'd all have income and jobs, but but our actual productivity and standard of living in society, uh, the net effect would be negative uh, compared to, to a free market. 
that's definitely true. So if you have a wrong theory of value, in other words, it's the amount of work that goes into something that creates value. No, it's not. I'm rubbish, rubbish at art. If I spend all week making a painting, it's not going to be a value to anyone. It might be a value to a friend that will take sympathy on me. Um, a, 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 a good artist will be able to produce better work in a half an hour than I will ever be able to produce in my life. It's, so as soon as you get in this idea that it's jobs that are important, it's not jobs. It's, um, it's living standards. It's the stuff that people actually produce that other people want that's important. It's not the fact that someone's in employment. It's the fact that someone is producing something that is of benefit and increases living standards for other people. Um, and that, that's where the labor theory of value goes wrong. Yeah, and it, I think uh, in the, there was a Monty Python film, um, The Holy Grail, something like that, uh, where there's an anarcho-syndicalist commune. And of course they make mud pies, um, which is, mm. is a bit of a right. <laughs> mickey cake. Um, so they've all got work, um, but of course, yeah. nobody wants my pies. Right. Okay. So let's move on to another theme: exploitation, labour exploitation. I think we've touched on it a bit. Now, my understanding of the concept of exploitation would be something like, uh, like a, a paedophile grooming children. Um, so a child is exploitable in that fashion because they inherently sort of trust adults, and, and also because the adult is stronger and has more recourse to using uh, force. So there's, there's, a, like a, there's a physical power and, and intellectual and emotional power disparity between the exploitee and the exploiter. So that's my understanding of exploitation. And I, I don't think that exists between, say, a production line worker and the capitalist or the manager class. I, I don't see... Um, it's, to, my, to me, saying the workers are exploited is, is literally like saying they're children and, and they can't, you know, they're somehow in some way fundamentally weak compared to the other person. Um, now, I know that's not the way the socialists quite look at it, but I, I wondered if you had any comments on, on this. Because it, it's like it's kind of, a, it, it's bringing up like a moralizing theme to... It is the, definitely a moralizing. Employment. It's, it's, it's turning in employment into an immoral act uh, because it's well they believe that it's immoral yeah yeah so no you, because they, they how do you define exploitation and do you think employment is exploitative or could it be exploitative is it exploitative in some scenarios and not others perhaps what would you think? okay well exploitation is a slippery and ill-defined term Okay, so when you talk about economic relations, I can say maybe three ways that exploitation could be used, and one of which the word theft should suffice, right? Yep. Someone takes something from someone else, right? That's theft. You don't need to use the word exploitation. And another one, someone enters into an agreement on false pretenses. Someone enters someone else into that agreement, in which case the word fraud should do the job, right? And in the third case, the most common usage is to give someone less than you think, than someone else thinks they should get for something they do, right? 
Is that is that fraud? To give, to give to give some no no that's the third way. That's not fraud. Right. That that's how socialists use it, basically to mean that someone is getting the less beneficial end of a transaction, so but, which they still but, benefit from. But can't that so actually, what I'm trying can't that actually happen? Um, like for example, yeah, yeah, but sometimes, exploitation. Sometimes I like maybe want to buy something, like I go into a music shop and I'd like to get myself, let's say, an amplifier. Um, and the guy selling it to me, maybe he rips me off a bit, he charges me a bit too much kind of thing, because I'm, I'm ignorant and I don't really know the price or the value of, I, I don't know that I could get it cheaper somewhere else. I mean, does that not, okay, well that, does that not sound like a similar um, thing? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, you can, you can go back in and ask him to refund or you can, um, you can, and if he decides not to, you can then spread the word about the fact that he's a dodgy guy, or you can go to a court and you might have recourse under common law. When I what what I was what I mean is when people usually use the word exploitation, they just mean that someone's getting less benefit from a transaction which they benefit from. So in that case, you may be benefited from having that stereo, just not as much as you thought you did. Perhaps that is fraud, perhaps it isn't. It really depends on the circumstances of the case. But ultimately, um, this idea is, is, is misused to characterize interactions that are moral as immoral. For example, someone giving them a job, someone else a job, because leftists don't believe that there's such a thing as a mutual exchange. You know, if I change my tie for your tie, I like your tie better than my tie and vice versa. So we're both better off, right? The same should or ought to happen on a free market. If you, if someone is giving you a job, they are paying you more than you think that you would get without the job. How do I know that? Well, if you think you could get more money being self-employed, then you just employ yourself, right? So yeah. they're actually doing you a favor. Or maybe you could make more money being self-employed, but you don't like the um, responsibilities. You don't like having to advertise your services. The capitalist gets paid after everyone else, right? Only if there's a profit does the capitalist get paid. So everyone else gets paid first. So that's a privileged uh, position, having a job. And that's another thing that you're surrendering some of your income so that someone else bears the risk that they might not get a profit. The capitalist is obviously better or has employed better people than you at figuring out what people want. So he's creating, he's basically planning the economy, if you like. If yeah. he's got a good plan, worker, sorry, consumers who are also workers will consume the product of his plan and he will be successful. If he has a bad plan, then he will go out of business, right? So, so, so the idea that capitalists exploit workers is just complete nonsense. It's a mutually beneficial transaction. Now, of course, in this crony capitalist system where it's very hard to employ people 
and there's all sorts of conditions that you need to meet to offer anyone a job, um, then uh, there, there may be a case to be made that because people have fewer options, they have to tolerate um, poor conditions than they would receive otherwise. But the the solution to that, hours, for example, would be, be something. That's the going solution on. of that is yeah. The solution of that is to allow anyone to employ anyone else who's willing to take the job, and then. Some people might suffer from poor conditions or poor wages in the short term, but in the long term, they'll be getting a better deal because they'll have more access to training on the job and they can leave a job which doesn't have conditions that suit them and easily find another one, even if it's just a placeholder before um, going into a third job which is better to their better suited to their preferences and bosses will start having to treat employees better. I, you know, I absolutely, I, I absolutely see that going on here in Thailand, where there's a lot less regulation. Uh, people will just go from one casual labour job to another one uh, quite, quite uh, readily um, if they're not happy um, with the work. You know, okay, it's poorly paid, but they'll just move, they'll just move on. And um, there was something else I wanted to say about this exploitation topic. Um, Oh yeah, it was coming back to the self-employment thing. I've actually had this conversation or, or argument or disagreement with somebody where they said, "Oh yeah, but the you know the the bosses, the capitalists exploit you." I just said, "Well, you, you just be self-employed, be a plumber, be a freelance IT worker, um, just go and just go and or form a co-op, go and join a co-op. You know, you don't have to um, work for for a boss." Um, you can you can work directly with your customers and clients. And of course, um, we, we come back to that uh, sort of skills gap thing. Of, of typically, if people don't know how to run a business, don't know how to be their, their own boss, don't know how to market their skills and, and uh, gain clients. Um, but it, nevertheless, that is still absolutely a choice. Um, although in many fields, of course, uh, the, the self-employed, role is, is getting challenging because you have to have maybe an occupational license, you have to fill yeah. in the, the tax forms and I think there's been movements by a government now to do uh, self-assessments like four times a year or something like that. So the government's in raising the bar on, on self-employment all the time and it's already a, quite a challenging thing to do to be self-employed. Um, you have to do your own admin and like I say your own marketing etc etc potentially. Um, but nevertheless, that's still an option, uh, theoretically. Okay. Uh, Indeed. Let's move on again. Okay. I need to wrap up, John. Okay. Um, I, I've only got two points left. Um, we've, and actually, one of them we've covered, which is the calculation problem. Um, so I'd just like to very shortly mention... Uh, something that I became aware of through reading a book by George Reisman on capitalism, and this is kind of again contra. Is it the is it the book is the book Capitalism by George Reisman by any chance? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Capitalism by George Reisman. Um, <laughs> the book on capitalism called Capitalism. Yes, strangely enough, it was about capitalism. Yeah, uh, he, he spoke about. Um, Wealth actually being rightfully the property of the intelligence or intelligent class, the management class, the capitalist. The intelligentsia. 
Yeah, and not the property of the workers. Because he said that wealth, and, and I think he actually tries to go for an example and, and that, that, yeah. um, that demonstrates it uh, empirically. Um, but I like to go back to nature again and say, well, look, an ants have been laboring for millions of years. Ants work very, very hard. Um, they, they labor, you know, hours a day. They lift five times their body weight, blah, blah, blah. And yet ants have accumulated no wealth whatsoever other than, you know, holes and dirt, um, which gets destroyed at the first uh, shower of rain. Um, so what he says, what, what Reisman says, is that, yes, it's the intelligence, it's the, the uh, smartness that we bring to the physical labor uh, that actually results in wealth, and and I think again you can prove this. Like if you yeah. imagine, if you imagine somebody on a on an assembly line with an IQ of ninety assembling widgets, and then um, maybe that person has a stroke or some brain damage, and their IQ drops down to seventy or sixty, they're clearly not going to be able to produce as much or as well, or perhaps maybe not at all. Um, so. Actually, this idea of socialism that the labouring classes are the heroes producing all the wealth is fundamentally wrong. It's actually the intelligence that the workers and the management and the business intelligence and the capitalist investment intelligence, it's all of that put together that actually produces wealth. Now, any thoughts right. on that? Well, George Reisman was obviously... Um greatly influenced by Ayn Rand, who I think I got the notion that the mind is the original means of production from. So obviously that comes through in his writing, that influence comes through in his writing there. Um, on a free market, you get what your labor is worth. You know, if there's a dearth of people who can do heavy lifting but there's a lot of heavy lifting being done needing done then they're going to get a massive wage if it's an intellectual brain work that needs to be done then um that's what's going to command the highest wage at the end of the day capitalists guess based on the information they have available to them, what regular people, everyday Joes want and try and provide it to them. If they do that successfully, they get rewarded back for it, more resources go in their direction and they can invest those resources in creating more of what people want. If they're poor at it, they go out of business. And this mechanism diverts resources to people who are good at using those resources and away from people who don't have a clue what they're doing with their resources. Yeah. So there, there's some truth, at least some truth in what George Reisman says and that's what I have to say on that matter. Okay. So, <laughs> um, did you want to uh, obviously wind up now? Um, did you want to say anything maybe quickly about the psychology yeah. of socialism? Is, is, uh, like terms that come up for me are like messianism, this, this hubristic belief that your ideas can sort of save everybody. Um, pathological altruism is another uh, like negative psychological um, label that I might apply to socialism. And, and then there's the whole thing of envy. Did you, did you want to contribute something quickly on that before we wrap up? 
Um, I think we could do a whole show on the psychology of socialism. I've got some things that I've been cooking up. But largely, I think that the desire for the state is the desire for security. Uh, the left have their shopping list, which is um, safety nets and welfare systems and free stuff. The right have theirs, which is tough on crime, tough on the so-called causes of crime, uh, um, which by which they mean drugs, and which don't cause crime. Um, well, or, or at least wouldn't if they were legal. And obviously a strong military and interventionist foreign policy. And um, they don't want the government. This is all based on the desire for security. It so, sounds like the absent parent, and, doesn't it? It's the substitute for the, for the parent that didn't turn up and look after you. It, and it, could, for it, you. it could well be. As we've seen people become weaker, through the comforts of technology, which, by the way, I'm not against. But, you know, the average person could not, if a tiger came, the average person could not climb a tree uh, to save their own life, to get away from a tiger. Um, whereas a couple of hundred years ago, the average, you try laboring on a farm for two hours, you will conk out and you won't wake up the next day. Whereas people used to do this day in, day out. As people have become weaker, um, they've become more scared. As they've become less skilled due to public education, uh, which doesn't teach them anything of any economical value, uh, they've become less confident that they can provide for themselves. And this all leads to wanting uh, false promises of security and people who support government believe the government can provide that security for them. Um, and if we really want to change the world, you know, we need to get people involved in transforming themselves and we need to dis we need to unblock the roots to um to higher pay which the which the state is blocked off. Yeah. Absolutely okay. agree. Okay, let's we could do a whole program on, on those kinds of things. Yeah, let's talk about the psychology some other time. Um, thanks very much for your time, okay. uh, Anthony. I really appreciate um, all your feedback and thoughts. They're really great. Yeah, uh, thank you for having me on your show. You're welcome. What, what, are you, what are you up to next? And is there anything you'd, you'd just like to uh, say to close? Yeah, we have a Scot uh, once a week I put out the Scottish Liberty podcast. It's well-liked. Um, by those who are aware of it. If you're not aware of it, check it out. It doesn't just cover topics that are relevant to Scotland. Most of the topics are universally of interest to libertarians, and most of our uh, audience is not in Scotland, although we do have a contingent. So check out the Scottish Liberty podcast, and um, uh, if you like it, uh, you can get in touch with me on Facebook. Uh, I write articles on economics. I have a blog, um, which you can find at um, seeingnotseen.blogspot.com. That's seeingnotseen.blogspot.com. And I think that you might, if, you, if you're interested in 
economics. I think you might learn a lot very quickly from my blog. If you want to learn a lot quickly, my blog is like the motorway to understanding economics. I, I think you do a great job of explaining uh, what you know can be quite uh, novel and challenging ideas to people. Thank you. And, uh, and I think it's great that you're really bringing this stuff out and making it accessible because it, you know, it took me a long time to stumble across the right books and yeah. uh, the right places. You know, a lot of this stuff has been very obscure for a long time, even though it's been around, like I say, you know, for, for over a century kind of thing. It, it's just not yeah. out. So the social yeah. has been a great way of bringing it to people. Um, and I don't know, there's a part of me that... Um, I don't know whether I want to salvage the left or, or rescue it or, or turn it around, but I, I feel there's a lot of potential on the political left, and maybe, maybe that's, that's a false belief, and it's really the right that we need to be sort of trying and, <laughs> and convincing to uh, scale down the state. Um, but I, I, I don't know. It seems like this is the right information, and I, I do hope people um, think yeah. that get into it because well, we, we have no idea whether people are open to these ideas or not until they've been exposed to them so it's really important to give people the benefit of the doubt they've gone through 11 to 13 years of conditioning in school it's not like you ever see a free marketeer on television uh, i've never heard someone on question time uh, say that they were a libertarian um although Kate Andrews of the IEA was on there not that long ago. People don't even know we exist. Now, if it comes to the stage where our ideas are in the mainstream media and everyone on the left largely rejects them, then it might, or the right, then it might be time to, then, then you could think that maybe we have to write people off. But until people have been exposed to these ideas, um, we, we just don't know. Um, and if, if we focus on the stuff that I cover in my article on the poor, which you can find, sorry, it's such an unwieldy term, scottishlibertarians.com forward slash the poor. If we can target those issues and make the left aware of them, then we have a chance of coalition building. Okay. More anon. Okay, thanks very much for having me on your show. It's been a, it's been a while, but it's been a good conversation. I've yeah. got to run. Okay, thanks, Anthony. Bye for now. Thank you. Bye-bye.